Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Welcome, Michael, to the Focus on Why podcast. Today, I'm joined by Michael Dodd, who is an international speaker, media and presentation coach, and author of the fantastic book, Great Answers to Tough Questions at Work. So great to be able to have this opportunity, Amy, to uh, share uh, some of it with your audience. I'm really looking forward to this podcast. It's going to be very interesting because Michael has got more experience than I dare to imagine in this area of interviewing, of journalism, of of asking and answering tough questions. So I'm going to be put on the spot, I feel, today. So we'll see how it goes. Well, if I do my job right in this environment where you're the uh, interviewer, I shouldn't generally be asking you questions. <laughs> Good point. So in relation to your book, what makes a great answer to a tough question? Well, amazingly enough, for anyone who's ever seen a sleazy, slimy politician on the air avoiding the question, a great answer actually deals with the uh, question and ideally answers it, or if it doesn't answer it, it actually explains very briefly why the person either can't answer it or won't answer it. But the really big difference between a sort of okay answer and a great one is that a great answer goes beyond the question in that it gets across a message, a message very much on the topic of the question. So it's not a diversionary message. It's a message which often uh, goes to the heart of what the person is asking about, possibly tells them a little bit more than what they want to know uh, rather than less, and typically involves a little story, uh, which is typically a, a real life example so that the answerer is putting a picture in the mind of the audience so that they can actually see what it is that the answerer is trying to say. Now, that sounds really straightforward and logical and makes perfect sense. Why is it not the case that we get that? Well, it's funny enough, uh, when I'm talking with people about helping them to uh, give great answers, uh, whether it's for the media or whether it's uh, tough questions from their clients or customers or, or officials or whatever, sometimes, just sometimes, people say, oh, can you teach me to be like those politicians who actually look as if they're answering the question and they're not? And I say, no, uh, I don't want you to look like them. I want you to look much better than them. And so uh, it's really about taking on the question and leaving the questioner and any associated audience, uh, like on TV, obviously the, the people who are watching, and leaving them really satisfied that they've actually got something new and interesting, fascinating, hopefully, and as well, that little story element so that they can actually visualize what the person is talking about. So a great answer often involves a certain amount of show, not tell. Sure, you're verbally telling it, but uh, actually, people can see what it is in their minds that you are trying to get across. So what would you say that the, the true role of a journalist should be? In an interview, 
my absolute uh, conviction is that a journalist needs to just ask questions, not to give their opinions. If they have an opinion, which might be an opinion which they would think is in the minds of their audience, they should use that opinion to put it in the form of a question. So if you're interviewing someone and you think they're saying something that's incorrect, you don't say that's incorrect, which a lot of what I call bad interviewers do. Uh, what you should be saying is, what would you say to someone who felt that that actually wasn't the case? Which is actually much more powerful. It puts the interviewer in more control, which is good because the interviewer ideally is doing a great job, not so much for their own curiosity, but for the benefit of their audience. And if they're asking the kind of things that the viewer, uh, the listener, would want to hear, then they're doing a good job. If they can make sure everything is a question, so they're not giving their own views, they're actually increasing the pressure on the interviewee in a good way, because it's actually challenging them to make sure that uh, every time they are you know, dealing with the answer, not avoiding it, and uh, being as helpful as possible for the listeners and viewers. So you're looking at helping people, you're looking at making them effectively better and more successful communicators. Have you always been sort of helping people do work this way? In a way, yes. I mean, I mean, even as a journalist, um, while you're not uh, there to kind of coach the interviewee in any way, often a bit like you did actually before this interview, you're kind of uh, saying the kind of answers that you know will work best for your audience and you're giving them a little bit, I suppose you might call it coaching beforehand, so that you're going to hit that win-win-win spot between you and them, the interviewee, and the wider audience. So in that sense, off-air, you are, uh, if you're doing your job right, helping them, particularly if you're interviewing kids or someone who's very nervous or something like that, you are often actually helping them a little bit in a way that the viewer or listener doesn't see or hear, but in the way that uh, if you've got your kind of teaching element right, it's in the interests of your audience. And where did you where did you start? Tell us about what you used to do, Michael, before this new role. So I was uh, a journalist. Uh, I studied communications at uh, university in Sydney. And I was uh, very keen to get out, so I started as a newspaper journalist. And after a few years, I thought, wouldn't it be great to be one of those uh, TV or radio people? Uh, because one of the things I liked about interviewing was the actual kind of drama in you ask this, what are they going to say? You ask this, what are they going to say? And in a newspaper interview, that's typically lost. Uh, the audience doesn't get to see that. So uh, while I could say my interviews uh, led to you know, some really interesting answers, which got us some great headlines and some interesting stories, the sort of behind-the-scenes element of it was lost. And I uh, got to work for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which uh, for your uh, uh, listeners and viewers in Britain is the Australian equivalent of the BBC. And I really love the idea that you could hold the microphone, put it under people's nose and ask challenging questions. Uh, we have a term for it in Australia called blowtorch on the belly questions. That's a technical term. 
Ouch. But it's kind of, yeah, uh, like really tough questions that are very much to the point. And I was like trained in the art of uh, blowtorch on the belly interviewing. We used to do lots and lots of practice interviews with each other as trainee journalists where they were playing the role of a politician who was in the news on the day and you would have to put them under maximum pressure. And we'd get slapped by the executive producer if we did venture to give opinions or even to say something that just kind of implied in some way some kind of expression of opinion. Uh, We were meant to be perfectly objective, even though we were putting the interviewee under a lot of pressure. But the thing is, it worked. And when you could hear that on radio or see the drama on TV, it added a new dimension to it. And I really, really liked doing that. And uh, it's always good to get feedback from the from the listeners and viewers when uh, you feel as though uh, when they're saying, yes, you really hit the spot, you really you know, squeeze the right answer, you put this person under pressure on behalf of us all. That's a really good feeling. And, and what are the benefits for the audience for you to be operating, for you to answer those types of questions? But to be asking those kind of questions, the benefit for the audience is that they are hearing the answers in a kind of unfiltered way. I mean, if you take a bad interviewer that you see on uh, TV where they're just expressing their opinions, there's one at the moment, I won't name him, but he's vehement that veganism is bad. And so if he interviews anyone to do with veganism, then he gets really wound up and you learn more about the interviewer than you do about the interviewee. And the art of interviewing is to put the spotlight very much on the interviewee in a way where hopefully fascinating for the audience and the audience are being given the kind of answers that uh, they really need in order to come to grips with whatever the topic is. So the role is is to be neutral and and to be objective about that and to sort of not opine on anything. I I get that. That's really important. What type of questions, what what are the different types of questions that a good journalist should be asking? Well, I think uh, variety is good. You don't want to be asking all blowtorch on the belly questions, particularly if it's not appropriate. When I'm uh, training journalists, often in their very first interviews, they latch onto this idea of must ask tough questions, but they're interviewing someone about their holiday or something (laughs) and it just doesn't quite work. So the questions need to be appropriate to the subject, but uh, certainly if they're interviewing someone in authority, then that person needs to be held to account effectively uh, by the journalist on behalf of their audience. And when that's done really well, uh, particularly if the person is actually giving great answers, so you've got a combination of great uh, blowtorch on the belly questions and some softer questions too when appropriate, and some great answers that are colourful, that are painting pictures in the mind, really getting to the heart of the issue, then that's an enlightening experience for everybody who uh, uh, listens and watches. Could you give me an example of a good soft question that led to a great moment or a great answer? Yes, I can. I can't actually remember the question, but that's kind of important because the question was fairly inconsequential, but the answer was not. And that was a, a question asked by David Frost in his famous series uh, with the resigned United States President Richard Nixon. And he was asking a lot of tough questions and Richard Nixon, who was not the straightest, uh, most honest, upfront character in the world, he says with a little bit of understatement, um, that Nixon was defending his time in office, even though there was this massive Watergate scandal. 
And David Frost at one point asked a question. I, I don't remember what it was, but it, it really didn't matter. And it was a softer question. And President Nixon, as a result, said something along the lines of, if the president does it, then it's legal. Now, if you think about that, that is dodgy from uh, all kinds of reasons, including from a legal reason. I mean, the president of the United States has a lot of power, but uh, the president, uh, you know, is not empowered with dictatorial uh, powers uh, and can't actually do what they like. But Nixon effectively said, uh, which was what uh, the psychologist might call a Freudian slip, he slipped out something which he didn't mean to say, but which was very telling. And I, when I was researching the book, I, I looked that up and it was clear that it was just that sort of softer little question from David Frost that actually got this moment of candour, uh, which Nixon wasn't generally famous for. And when he was uh, being straight and honest, um, yeah, he was really telling something which was pretty scary. And have you had this, a similar experience in your own career where you've asked a, a sort of fairly inconsequential question and got a great answer? Sometimes, yes. Often the answer's not so much great in terms of, uh, from the point of view of the interviewee, but it can be great from the point of view of the audience. Uh, I'll tell you one that sticks in my mind. And I mean, I kind of knew what I was doing when I was asking this, but there was a politician, he was a government minister, who had a press conference, and he mainly called the press conference in Canberra, the Australian capital, to have a go at a smaller party. It was the Australian Democrats Party, uh, which was a bit of a threat to his party, the Labour Party, the Australian Labour Party at the time. And he basically called a press conference not to enlighten uh, the country, but to have a go at this other party. And there was uh, a by-election on in Queensland and he was criticising, for whatever reason, I think this party, the, the smaller party, was running a candidate, but the leader, for whatever reason, and Australia's a big place, wasn't on the ground in the, uh, the electorate in Queensland, uh, shaking hands or things like that, for, for whatever reason. Uh, I don't think there was any scandal involved, but he kept criticising this party, saying the party leader hadn't visited. And, um, and he was getting quite wound up about this. And I asked the question... Uh, Mr. I won't give his name, uh, Mr. X, how many visits have you made to the electorate in Queensland? Now, the answer, which I had suspected, was clearly none. But he just blithered and blathered and realised that he was kind of catching himself out. And that uh, made sort of good media because people could see that this guy was being a hypocrite. And so I got a certain amount of kudos from my colleagues uh, for asking that question, which was a very simple question. But it was the kind of question that uh, he didn't really want to be asked, hadn't even thought about, uh, and it got him unstuck. And when I'm now in my role where I'm helping people to give great answers to questions in training sessions or at conferences, one of the things I'm wanting them to be ready for is, can you be ready, uh, which the answer is yes, you can, for that question that you're thinking at three o'clock in the morning before the interview, I hope they don't ask me that. And I want my trainees to be ready to give a great answer to that question in a way that the politician I referred to earlier uh, didn't and couldn't. 
That's really interesting. So would you call that, that type of moment a gotcha moment, as in you, 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 you got them into the, the position of where you really knew that they're going to get, make a big mistake? I mean, it's, it's not a great feeling, but it's what you're looking for, that sensational headline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that is one of the things that you should be aware of. And that's one of the differences between uh, a good interviewer doing their job well and one that isn't, is that they are good at listening. And they can, so they're not just going in with a pre-thought-out set of questions. They're listening and asking questions, which may or may not be obvious ones for the listeners and viewers, but they're there at the right time, throwing in something which relates to what has just gone beforehand. And uh, that's if you're actually uh, sitting at home critiquing an interviewee at any point, uh, that's often the difference between a good one and a not so good one is that they're in the moment asking that question, which is what the person on the couch was thinking. Yeah, I wanted to know that. So uh, if you're doing that, typically you're doing a good job. So essentially the techniques that you're using, you're forcing the interviewee to tell the truth. Yes. And when I'm training people, I'm actually getting people to tell the truth as well. I mean, the truth is really important. I mean, what's the point of having any conversation unless you're trying to prove someone is a liar? I mean, you want truth to be the background of it for both the interviewer and the interviewee. And uh, I mean, that's why when they're done well in court, uh, a great cross-examination with uh, a great QC and a witness Uh, who might be accused of murder or something. There's fantastic drama often uh, put in sort of whodunits on TV uh, or a a series uh, about lawyers like Rumpole of the Bailey. And you've got this kind of moment, series of moments where you've got a good questioner and uh, a good or maybe a bad answerer, but they're being put under pressure for the public interest. You know, when that's done well, uh, it's from the viewer's point of view, you know, you can't turn the TV off. You know, you want to see it. You want to know what's going to happen. And that is a great thing. And one of the things that I have picked up from QCs, and I have seen some impressive QCs in action in courts while covering court cases, is that they often say you shouldn't ask a question if you don't know what the answer actually is. So if you're the, if you're the, the QC and you're cross-examining someone, if you say, where were you at 10 o'clock on the morning of the murder, and you know, well, you, you're, you're, you've got evidence that they were actually at the murder scene with a knife in their hand. You know, where were you? If they say anything other than at the murder scene, you know, aha, they're, they're not telling the truth. And that uh, you then feed that into your follow-up questions. And just by asking questions without making any comments as a QC, and I have played the role as QC in training for court cases, you know, you've got a lot of power. Then the power is because you're sticking to the question. And journalists can use that power effectively uh, by just asking questions. I mean, journalists can't compel the witness, the interviewee, to answer the question uh, in the same way as someone in a courtroom can. But there is a certain authority that comes with their interviewing if they are meticulously just asking questions and asking the right questions at the right time. And that can lead to uh, both great drama as well as answers which are really useful for the audience and for the wider community. So one of the things I'm noticing, Michael, is that you, you you do quite a lot of research before you interview people. Is that something that's useful to do? 
it's useful, but sometimes as a journalist, you don't actually have to um, because if a breaking story has happened and it's something that no one in the office has got any expertise on, uh, you've got to be basically doing interviews without knowing a lot of background information. And a good journalist will research the area where possible, but the trick is you don't want to let that research get in the way of asking great, you know, sometimes spontaneous questions if that's what the audience needs to know. I remember a guy I worked with uh, uh, who was more senior than me when I joined the Australian Broadcasting Corporation called Tim. And I remember Tim saying he reckoned, and he wasn't a big noter, Tim, uh, but he reckoned he could do an interview if someone was put in front of him and he didn't even know what the topic was. And funnily enough, uh, that actually happened to me once. I was in Canberra and I was uh, uh, just, in my view, I was in the role of letting in the person to the studio and I thought that the people in Sydney, uh, the compere of the program, was going to do the interview. And they said, and uh, he's now talking to Michael Dodd. And, oh, my goodness, I need to put this uh, technique into practice. And it was like, uh, so what's the biggest thing on your mind at the moment? Um, and sort of ask a general question and then listen very carefully and get the answer. But research can be really useful when you're in kind of investigative mode. And uh, there was a case where I'd uh, left Canberra and started to work in Eastern Europe, which was uh, really interesting at the time. We didn't know it at the time, but it was... Uh, very much towards the end of the Cold War. And I got the chance to ask blowtorch on the belly questions to someone who was well-meaning, but not a particularly competent interviewee. Uh, and this was someone who was uh, a spokesperson for the Communist Party in Poland, uh, which was then a communist country. And they were the vice minister for nuclear power. And I don't think they were used to blowtorch on the belly questioners from Canberra. And I had done a bit of research uh, for this interview, and I knew that in Poland they had nuclear power reactors, which were based on Russian, uh, I should say Soviet Union, technology. And this was a little time after the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. And so I thought, on the basis of my research, I should be asking him about this. And I remember saying, uh, you know, Vice Minister, can you guarantee that these uh, nuclear reactors in Poland, which are uh, very much based on the technology uh, for the nuclear power industry in the Soviet Union, where they've had this Chernobyl disaster, can you guarantee they're safe? And I remember him saying, no, I can't guarantee their safety. Uh, and this was kind of like one of those kind of gotcha moments. I mean, uh, to, be, to be fair to him, he was being very honest, although I don't think his communist lords and masters would probably have approved of uh, the answer that he gave. Uh, but it was a moment of candor because he couldn't think of anything else to say. And uh, we not only broadcast that in Australia, actually, I gave the interview to the BBC as well and did a program for them on Europe's world. And they thought, this is great stuff. Uh, you know, the world needs to hear this. Uh, the guy in charge of nuclear energy can't guarantee its safety. So that was a kind of gotcha moment uh, where I did <clears throat> use the research, not that it was particularly uh, intense or brilliant research, in order to get you know, an answer that the world needed to hear. And potential collateral damage fallout of his career thereafter. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what happened to him. I don't think it was career enhancing, uh, that's for sure. <laughs> But as the journalist, that's not your job. And sometimes, uh, you know, the collateral damage, as you nicely put it, um, is that the person you interview, and this has happened uh, with me a couple of times, they've actually lost their job. 
not necessarily in the next five minutes, but but over the next few weeks, their public credibility is so damaged that the, the prime minister or their equivalent thinks uh, this person can't go on. Or sometimes they themselves think, I couldn't stand up to that question. I gave a terrible answer. You know, that's part of the reason why I need to go. Sometimes uh, that's what is the trigger. And as a journalist, if you're asking tough questions in the right places in the right way, I mean, that's a, a very powerful tool. You're not typically setting out to ruin someone's career. But if you do your job right, someone who's not competent for the job can lose it. And that's clearly in the public interest. And why is communication so important for you? Well, I think it's an integral part of everything and particularly leadership. I work a lot with chief executives and other senior people in business. And, uh, you know, uh, often uh, and one of the things I've learned about chief executives, because I've worked with so many, is they tend to be very clever people. They don't get in their job uh, in the tough capitalist world by accident. Uh, they're often very fast learners. And they typically, they not always have a great knowledge of their industry. I mean, sometimes a CEO will go from one industry to another and their talent is not so much in the industry. Uh, their talent is in managing people and uh, making the right decisions. But essential to that, in my humble opinion, is communication. I think it's almost impossible to be a great leader if you're not also uh, pretty close to being a great communicator as well. And so it is great to work with these you know, intelligent, important people and to help them to be able to uh, get their ideas across. Uh, and often their companies are doing great things and they're not as good as they should be. And they often know this at explaining it. And when you can actually help them get their story across, that's a really good feeling. And if you analyze it, it comes down to the fact that, you know, communication is essential. You know, you can have the, uh, the world's greatest business idea, but if you can't explain it to anyone, it's only an idea and it's not going to be better than that. So communication is very, very important. And the good business leaders do take it seriously and often realize, yes, I need some help. And would you say that what you do is a skill that people need to learn the most? Well, I suppose it's not for me to say that it's more important if I'm training doctors, uh, which I do sometimes. Uh, it's probably more important that they can actually uh, empathise with their patients and uh, diagnose the uh, uh, the problem and correct it. That's probably more important than their communication skills in one sense. Although, if I'm helping them enhance their communication skills, uh, sometimes it can have a positive uh, effect on their bedside manner and the way they interact with patients. I'm typically more training them to do great interviews. But often when you're learning how to do better interviews, you're actually enhancing your ability to be a better communicator in general. And often the side effect, if we're talking medical here, uh, the side effect of uh, being able to do better media interviews is to actually be better at interacting with people in general, uh, which I think is a good thing. And helping people become more successful in their communication skills. Has this been something you've always been passionate about? I think I became more passionate about it actually after I stopped being a journalist. Because from the journalist's point of view, you're interested in kind of creating this drama in the interview and getting, you know, those gotcha moments that you mentioned uh, where you're getting people to give answers, uh, which in some cases may be great answers or others might be answers which are very telling because they give away something that uh, uh, they were not meant to say but the public need to know. So there is a, um, uh, a big jump to that, uh, to be a, being in the role of helping people give great interviews. But um, 
when you're actually helping people to do it, it is amazing what a difference you can make. I first picked up the techniques or the basis of them. I suppose in some ways I've enhanced them. But I started working at one point in the public relations world as a, a test out journalist. So I'd be brought in after a PR company had done some training or while they were doing some training so that I could be asking uh, their client blowtorch on the belly questions, putting them under pressure to see if they could withstand it. And if the training that they did was good, then they could withstand it. And if the training was not so good, they uh, they weren't so good at standing up to them. And, and more and more, I got brought into actually doing the training myself. And when I learned the kind of techniques that you can use uh, as an answerer, I was gobsmacked. I thought, that's amazing. And I started looking back on all the interviews that I'd done uh, as an interviewer and thought, hmm, I think that person who gave great answers, even though I was uh, putting them under a lot of pressure, probably did have some training. And that person who collapsed in a quivering heap, uh, like the one I mentioned, uh, the politician talking about Queensland in Australia, uh, he probably hadn't had any training and probably needed some. And so it was really enlightening for me to see that even though I was a specialist on asking tough questions, that there was a body of uh, methodology which could be drawn upon to help people answer them. And there's quite a few books have been written about uh, media training. As far as I could see at the time, and I did research this on behalf of the publisher, there wasn't much out there to give great answers beyond media interviews or job interviews. And that's what uh, we set out to do in Great Answers to Tough Questions at Work, was to give people this methodology, which I found gobsmackingly enlightening uh, to other people so that everyone in the world of work would have the benefit of being able to draw upon it and give great answers, whether it was uh, uh, for their first job or whether they were on the board for years and perhaps people were trying to throw them off the board because they thought they were too old and tough questions uh, were being asked or whatever the situation was, I thought it was great to equip people with this methodology. And uh, that's what I do when I'm not uh, writing. I'm helping people adapt that methodology to their own answers, hopefully for the benefit of the universe as well as for them personally. Absolutely. I mean, I, we've all had those moments where we've been asked a question and our immediate response is, I think you cover you cover this in your book, it's either stupid or wrong or self-defeating. And you have that sort of absolute hands in your head moment when you walk out the room saying, oh, that, why did I answer it like that? Yes. Yeah. The French have an expression for it, which is uh, to do with the thoughts you have on the stairs on the way out of that encounter. And um, it's not a good feeling, as you say. And my book is designed to stop you having that feeling because one of the perhaps surprising things about great answers is that it's not a matter generally of thinking fast on your feet. People who've heard me be interviewed and think that I've done well often say, oh, Michael, that was really good. You're really good at thinking fast on your feet. And I actually say, well, that's nice of you to think that, but oh, no, it isn't. What it's really about is doing your thinking beforehand so that you're anticipating what uh, the questioners need to know and what the wider audience needs to know. And you're actually thinking, well, if they ask me that, what is the best thing I can say? in response to that, which is uh, a technique which leads you to work out what the, what the best answer is. And so if you're being interviewed uh, and you're doing really well, it doesn't uh, mean that you're a fast thinker. It just means quite often that you've thought about things before. And so it's a bit like a cookery expert 
uh, when they say, here's one I created earlier, because the viewers don't have time to wait for the oven to cook the cakes. And if you actually work out what the tough questions are and then work from there and work out what the best answers are, then in the spotlight, in the moment, bang, you can come across as if you're a, a fast thinker, but that's not the point. The point is you're giving the best possible answer because you've given it some thought and you've planned, prepared and practiced for it. And that's what we do in the training sessions, which means people are under a lot less pressure when they are asked that blowtorch on the belly question or the kind of question that uh, normally, if they do a bad job, they're walking out thinking, oh, I wish I'd said this or that. I'm trying to get them to do that thinking in advance so they can have that great feeling of, yeah, I really nailed that one. So the key components of planning, preparation and practice that you just mentioned, would you say that would help leave the fear of or lay the fear of public speaking that people have it does have a big uh, impression on that i mean when i'm training people and i do quite a lot of it training people to do presentations then practice is, is a big part of it but it's not a matter of learning a script word for word in fact that's often the worst thing to do because it saps spontaneity and often if people learn something word for word in the heat of the moment they forget something and then it all falls apart. It's happened to me once. I don't want it to happen to you. Um, so planning, preparation and practice are important, but not training sort of within an inch of their life as if uh, everything depends on that moment and they have to remember everything. It's more a matter of getting them really comfortable about their material. And I say to someone, you know, if you were to give this same speech to perhaps uh, uh, 50 different audiences on 50 successive days, I would be wanting it to be you know, for you to be sticking to the messages we've worked out and sticking to the plan every time. But in each case with each audience, you'd be saying it just slightly differently at different points. Uh, and you'd have that element of spontaneity so that the substance is getting across, but it's not a matter of I've learned this exact pattern of words, which often takes the energy out of it for the audience. So every time you're doing the, the great presentation, ideally, and often answering questions along the way, uh, which is a good discipline to help you anyway, each performance would be coming out ideally slightly differently, and that's a good thing. And how does it feel to see your clients transform from, I would say, sort of low two or three out of 10 to after your sessions with you getting a high eight or nine out of 10? Yeah, well, I think it feels good for them, but if I get the chance to witness it, which occasionally I do, uh, it probably feels even better for me. I mean, I have done a situation once, uh, this was in Brighton on the south coast of England, where I trained someone and then they had to go on a BBC program. We actually had to cut the training short because they had to be on the program. I think it was 11 o'clock. And so I did this quick training thing and they weren't that great. They probably were about two out of 10. And I think we probably got them to about seven out of 10 in the time. I wouldn't say they were a 10, but I remember walking across Brighton and going to the BBC studio and I was just like there as one of the team. They didn't know I was the secret trainer watching behind the glass. And the person did very well, a hell of a lot better than they'd done when I'd done a tryout for the interview first thing in the morning with them. So that was a really good feeling. And uh, I do remember once... I was training someone and then I was actually able to go to the event. And it was a fairly simple thing I was training them with. It was just how to do a great business introduction, uh, which you sometimes have to do at a networking meeting. And um, I trained them and they got to be pretty good. And then um, I actually went to a networking meeting. This was more by coincidence where they happened to be and they needed to give their 60 second chat about what they did. And uh, 
it was great. We were all sitting around holding glasses of wine. And uh, I remember thinking, ta-da, drinking to their their bit, which was great. They got a round of applause for it, which you don't always do. And they did nail it. And they did everything that we'd, we'd, uh, we'd learned earlier in the week. Uh, and that was a really good feeling. That's amazing. So, I mean, listening to your story of how you sort of turned sort of gamekeeper, not poacher anymore, moving from being that tough t- blowtorch on the belly journalist to now helping and and giving people the opportunity to be successful communicators. What is your key driver for doing this? Uh, it is great to actually, at the end of a training program, for someone to say, oh, I feel so much better now. Um, yeah, I really feel I can do it. And then you get an email from them a couple of days later, or you get the chance to see them live on television and they actually have done it, and they feel terrific. And that is a really good feeling because people do get terribly nervous. I mean, <clears throat> being brought up as a blowtorch on the belly interviewer, uh, we weren't given a lot of sympathy to the people who had to answer our questions. Uh, that wasn't uh, the foremost uh, in the mind of the uh, executive producers at uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation who taught me how to do it. But I did learn over time that uh, often it's quite a tough experience for them, whether they've got something to hide, uh, which ideally they shouldn't, but even when they don't have anything to hide, but they're just not very good at explaining their point of view or explaining the situation. And so when you can help someone in that situation, and I mainly work with business people, I have done a few politicians, but not very many. I'm mainly working with business people or or people who run charities or things like that. And it's a really good feeling for them and for me to know that they're walking away from the session feeling a lot more confident and to know that it's not just confidence because of a few what I might call confidence tricks. And there are things to do about breathing and mindset that I can work on people with to help get them in a better place, feeling more confident. But real confidence in a situation where you're answering questions is uh, where you are confident that you are competent to answer it. And my confidence that I'm leaving people with is based on enhanced competence so that it's not just a matter of them having uh, tricking their brain into thinking they're confident, they've got good reason to be. And uh, sending people away like that is a really good feeling. I'm not surprised. I mean, it, it seems like it's been a lifelong work for you. Is that the case? Yeah, I didn't really set out to do, uh, to do that, oh, although I have always been interested in communication. But this uh, thing that I've kind of fallen upon of helping people get ready for interviews or ready for tough questioning situations, uh, it is quite a joy. It's very positive. One of the things about journalism, and I love journalism when it's practised well, uh, but it does have a sort of a negative tinge to it. Because, uh, you know, often a really good interview is where you're putting someone under pressure and a great result for you is that they don't actually do that well, which, you know, it might get you a lot of kudos when it goes out and uh, you're calling someone to account who really isn't doing their job well or shouldn't be in the job. But it is essentially a bit on the negative side, whereas when you're running a training session and you're asking people tough questions in order to help them withstand that, and you're giving them the techniques to withstand it, to improve the content of what they say, the way they structure their answers, and the way they look, the way they sound, the way they feel when they're delivering those answers. That is a much more positive experience, and uh, I, I really like that. Oh, I think you've you've been an incredible 
guests today and given us some really key pointers of how we can all improve on our communication. I've been listening and I'll be taking notes later when I listen back to this interview and and try and make my interviews better by asking better questions to get better answers or great answers, as you say. Thank you so much for coming on, Michael. It's been fantastic. It's been a pleasure. Give um, our audience something to depart on, something to think about. What would you say or what, what uh, advice would you give about anybody who is thinking about how to get that great answer to a tough question? Yeah, I did touch on this earlier, but I probably should leave you with this thought because it is really powerful. And that is when you're doing what I'm suggesting you do and you're thinking about that interview, uh, job interview or TV interview or that encounter with someone really important who could be asking you tough questions. And when you're thinking that thought, oh, I hope they don't ask me this, I would say, number one, get ready for that. Because even if they don't ask it, you're going to feel so much better if you know you can answer it. And one of the things to do when you're preparing for it is, and uh, this forces you to think positive. I'm sorry about that, but you've got to think positive on this. It's when you're contemplating it, think with that question, that blowtorch on the belly question that I really don't want to be asked, what is the best thing that you can say on the topic? And you can probably tell already that forces you to think positive rather than thinking, oh my goodness, uh, you know, it's going to be awful if I ask that. You're thinking, well, what's the best thing I can say? And play around with that. And, you know, in the planning, preparation and practice, uh, practice saying an answer which encompasses that great thing. That will give you, if you do it right, and particularly if you give a, an example that people can see to tack on the end of it, a great answer. And that is good for you. It's good for them. It's good for the wider audience. It's good for the world. So, uh, yeah, it's basically a, a positive mindset in your preparation, which you can then carry forward into the interview, into the, uh, the questioning moment and try and enjoy it. And when you've done your preparation right, you can enjoy it. And that uh, is a good feeling for you as well as to the people asking your questions and the people listening to your answers. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star iTunes review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of the inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.